We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and today we find ourselves at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is probably the best known chapter in all of Paul's letter called 1 Corinthians, the chapter on love. Often you'll hear this passage used at a wedding to teach husbands how to love wives and wives how to love husbands, and, and that's okay. But that's not really the original historical context of the chapter. You see, what Paul is really talking about is love between us, love between church members, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, put in this context, in chapter 12, there's a discussion about spiritual gifts. And the Corinthians were all seeking the more flashy, the flamboyant spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues and making a show and making chaos in worship. He's going to talk about it on the other side of chapter 13. So chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts. Chapter 14 is about spiritual gifts. And right in the middle is chapter 13. It's sort of a, a sandwich here. Spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts, and love in the middle. So rather than being a passage or a chapter that doesn't fit the context, actually it's perfect in the context, and he brings up the very gifts of the church in chapter 13. So the passage this morning is about how we love each other, how I love you, you love me, we love each other as the body of Christ. Now, we have the, the, the setting of spiritual gifts. Look back at chapter 12 and verse 30. All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. And then the excellent way is not the flashy, flamboyant gifts, but rather the excellent way is the way to learn to love. In fact, if you'll notice, he ends chapter 12 speaking about glossolalia or Holy Ghost language or tongues. And then look how he begins chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I'm a, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And so... There's nothing about this chapter that doesn't fit. It is woven even with the word tongues from chapter, 13, chapter 12 to chapter 13. And that's all the content of chapter 14. So the setting is the church was competing with each other during worship and causing chaos. He's telling them that everything they do ought to be done in love. What is foundationally? Paul's understanding of love. For Paul, what is love based on? In fact, for Paul, love is based on Christ on the cross being crucified. That was the ultimate image of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Whatever love looks like, a, a Messiah crucified on the cross, it certainly doesn't look like the church in Corinth who's competing and fighting and they're abusing the poor and dragging them into courts and, oh, it, it was a mess in Corinth. And Paul says, you guys don't know how to love. Let me teach you how to love. And love should always govern the use of spiritual gifts. Love should always govern the use of 
of spiritual gifts. For Paul, love is not a feeling. Love is the name of specific actions of patient and sacrificial service with pure motives to others in the church. For Paul, love is specific actions and sacrificial service with purity of heart and motive to others in the church. Several years ago, the Nova TV series advertised it was going to air show a documentary on the intimate portrait of two groups, and everybody in these two groups labors exclusively for the benefit of the group. That there's no selfishness in this group. There's no one seeking his own in this group. But Nova said they'd found two groups where everybody did what was best for the whole group, like Paul's trying to get the church at Corinth, and not for, not for their own. Everybody waited with bated breath, turning on that Nova series. Where are these groups? Is this some undiscovered tribe deep within Africa? Is this an isolated clan living in the interior of South America? Is this some unique cohort in the far frozen north? Where is it that these people love each other and do everything they do for the benefit of the group and not for the benefit of self? It was ants and cockroaches. Ants and cockroaches. The two groups to do everything, not based on what's best for them, but what's, be what's best for the benefit of the group. In other words, what Nova was telling us is, we've got to look beyond our own species if we're going to find a species that really puts the group first. Well, this first section, verses 1 through 3, he says something like this. Spiritual actions without the motivation of love are meaningless. Spiritual actions that aren't motivated by love are meaningless. If I have the gift of tongues, if I speak like angels, but I don't love, it's just a clanging gong. And then he picks on prophecy and mystery and knowledge. If I have all faith, if I can remove mountains, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. I can give all my possessions, he says, to the poor. I can send my body to be martyred, but if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. In fact, he mentions both the gifts. He prefers the gift of prophecy. That's what he says in the next chapter, chapter 14. In Corinth, they prefer the gifts of glossolalia or tongues. And so he picks on both their gift and his gift, though he has the gift of tongues as well. And he says, if you do either one of these, and yet you don't do it from a motive and a place of love, you are nothing but noise. Love has to be the motivation. You have to be careful, Paul says. You and I can do the right thing for the wrong reason. We can, and sometimes do, the right thing. There's nothing more tempted because you're doing a good thing. We can do the right thing for the wrong reason. As you sacrifice yourself through service, what are our motivations? Our motivations, love and service, or receive recognition? What is the heartbeat of your expression of your spiritual gifts? Let's be clear. Now, that's the first three verses where he says, you have to have love as a motivation or you're just making noise. Now, in verses four through seven, he says, this is what love looks like. 
Let me describe love for you. This is the way that love looks like. Now, the easiest person in the world to love is someone who loves you back. I love you, and you love me back. That's easy love. Or maybe I could take a more brave step and say, I love you because I think you might love me back. Or you might take an even another step of courage and say, I've learned to love people in the community who are, who are not very lovable, but I love them anyway. You're getting closer to God-like love. Or, really hard, how many of us can say, I love my harshest critic? And that's not good enough still. For Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. Jesus loved his enemies even while he's being crucified on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. What does God-like love look like? It looks like Jesus on the cross who's loving those who are crucifying him. Love your enemies. Soren Kierkegaard once said, you don't think you need God? You go try to love your enemies and you'll come back and tell me, I need God. Love is doing. Love <clears throat> is serving. Each thing that love does is something where the ego does not dominate. And each thing that love does not do is somewhere where the ego does dominate. Let me say that again. In Paul's list, each thing that love does is something where the ego does not dominate. And each thing which love does not do is something which the ego does dominate. What does love look like? This love that is even willing to love enemies this God-like love, well, he gives us a list. First of all, verse 4, love is patient. Now, patient here is a passive idea. Love suffers long. Love is slow to anger. And of course, where do we find this long-suffering, patient love? The example is the forbearance of God. In fact, he'll tell the church at Rome when he writes them their letter, do not think lightly of the forbearance or the patience of God. Love is patient. We're not naturally very patient with others, are we? But love is patience. The Greeks had a peculiar event in their Olympic Games, an unusual race the winner was not the winner who finished first, but it was the runner who finished with his torch still lit. It wasn't the runner who crossed the line first, but rather the runner who crossed the line with his torch still aflame. He went at the pace and the race to allow his flame to burn. Love is patient. Well, there's another description. Love is kind. Love is kind. Being long-suffering is a passive image of love. Kindness is the active image of love. Love is active. Love is busy doing for others what others are not able to do for themselves. Love is busy doing for others what others are not able to do for themselves. 
Love doesn't sit still. Love is out and about tending to others, and kindness recognizes everyone carries a heavy load. Love is a, a third grade child in our Sunday school going back to the school tomorrow. A refugee child who doesn't know any English comes and sits down beside her, and even with the language barrier, she shows him the ropes of what to do in class. Chooses to sit beside the new kid. That's love. Love is when our students in our student ministry might go on a Saturday morning to check on a, an elderly friend in the nursing home who cannot come to him. That is love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. It gets tougher as we go, doesn't it? Love is not jealous. Whatever color love comes in, it never comes in the color of green, ever. Love is not jealous. Now, remember, the context of 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, there are some in the church who are jealous of the spiritual gifts of others, those who are our ears are jealous of those who have the body part and the body of Christ of being the mouth. And those who are feet are jealous of those who are hands. And the more showy gifts are getting more attention. And so everybody's trying to claim the showy gifts. And Paul says, stop it. Love is not jealous when your sister or your brother has a gift different than yours. Love rejoices over the abilities and accomplishments of others. Listen to that. Love rejoices over the abilities and the accomplishments of others. That, that takes a godlike love, doesn't it? We all wish our friends well, but not too well. You know the feeling? You want your friend to succeed, but when they do, we become unsure of ourselves. We fear being shown up. We feel down about ourselves. It's easier to tolerate hearing about a friend's struggle or misfortune than it is to hear about his or her successes because our friends are the closest thing to being like us. Their success makes us question ourselves. Why not me? Why, why didn't that happen to me? We all ask ourselves. Nothing Nothing alienates people quite like success, and nothing was alienating the church at Corinth like the success of some with their spiritual gifts and the showiness of their gifts. When people become successful, they discover they can get pretty lonely with their success. Your friends need to be able to celebrate their success without feeling there or intimidating you or share their failures without you're taking a secret satisfaction from them. Allow your friends to confide all of their successes to you without becoming envious or asking to participate in it. The best thing you can say is no one deserved it more. And when you say that, you'll probably be right. Well, there's the puffer fish now, number four. Love is not puffed up. Love does not brag. It's translated love is not arrogant, but some translations say puffed up, and that's really what it says. Love is not puffed up. Love is not arrogant. Love does not brag. When people are constantly talking about 
I and me and my. We're dealing with an insecure person who's trying to compensate for some deep-seated insecurity. When a person talks about you and yours and ours, you find someone with spiritual maturity who has concern for the well-being of others. In Corinth, it was I and me and my and no us and ours. They were selfishly seeking the gifts to make a show. And the church body, Paul says, love should not be arrogant or puffed up or, or braggadocious, but rather love should be focused on others, not bragging. Two boys were bragging about their daddies and comparing which dad was the best, their father's abilities. Well, there of arrogance, the first boy made the claim, my dad is so fast he can shoot an arrow at the target and run and catch the arrow before it ever hits the target. How about that? Next boy said, well, that's pretty good. But my dad is so fast, he can shoot a rifle at a deer and tackle the deer before the bullet ever gets there. That's pretty good, the third boy said. Your, your dads are really something. My dad's faster than either one of them. He can get off work at 5.30 and be home by 5.15. Of all the bad things mentioned in Scripture, God reserves his greatest criticism for pride. Pride I do hate, God said. Pride becomes a, a shoving God off of his throne and putting ourselves on our own little throne. Pride makes each of us the center of our own universe and removes God from that center. In fact, this word for being puffed up or arrogant is used seven times in the New Testament. And guess where we have six of those occurrences? Right here in the book called 1 Corinthians. He tells them not to be puffed up in chapter 4 twice. He tells them not to be puffed up in chapter 5. He tells them, oh, turn over to chapter 8. I want you to look at that occurrence there in, in chapter 8. It's a good example when he's telling them not to be puffed up. And this is a good comparison, not to be puffed up, but to build up. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. Maybe translate arrogance in your text. But knowledge makes arrogant, but love, love builds up. Your translation may say edifies. So right here, he gives us a hint all the way back in chapter 8 when it comes to the comparison between puffing up and building up, saying you have knowledge and you're smart and you're better than your peers. That just causes you to, to puff up, but rather we want you to follow the Christ, his love, which builds up. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now back to chapter 13. This is exactly the context of the church here in Corinth. They are competing and they're arrogant. They're puffed up. They're not building up the body. You show me a man who thinks he knows everything, has the knowledge and how everything ought to be done. I'll show you a man who's immature in his Christian walk and immature in his Christian love. We are all insecure these days, and so we live in a world of great arrogance. Now, please understand that not every 
uh, informing Christmas letter comes across this way, but you've gotten those generic Christmas letters where you think, my goodness, can their life really be that swell compared to my life? Oh, my, my goodness. Well, dear Abby found those letters a, a little bit intimidating herself, and so she wrote kind of a, a parody of the one she had received, and, and this is the letter she came up with and says, this is what some of those letters sound like, and, and not yours to me, but everybody else's. Here's the way it, it sounds like. Dear friends, what a great year. Jim was named vice president at the bank. We're celebrating by buying a Mercedes and flying to the Orient. In addition to his Boy Scout work, Jim was co-chairman of the United Fund Drive. He continues to work on the board at Grace Hospital, and he's the treasury of the Rotary. His first love, however, has remained conservation. He's heading up the committee to fight the Dutch Elms disease. After competing my term as junior league president, I swore I would take life easy, but I'm more involved than ever before. I accepted the vice presidency of the Garden Club. I'm still active in the DAR, and I ran a bake sale for the Eastern Star, and we made $900. I also squeezed in a flower arranging class offered by a Japanese exchange student. All this while my leg was in a cast. <laughs> Dumb me, I fell off the ladder hanging curtains at the homeless shelter. <laughs> You've gotten a letter just like that. I know you have. Well, somebody just had it with these letters, and so she just told the truth, and she wrote, Dear friends, we've had a rotten year. Bill's passed over for promotion again, so he just quit his job. He hasn't lined up anything yet, but he's listed with the unemployment agencies. He looks at the want ads every day. In the meantime, he's drinking like a fish. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Love is not arrogant. Love serves in silence. Love doesn't look to be called up here and handed a plaque or a certificate. It's the quiet working of the body of Christ, the hands, the feet, the mouth, the ears, the eyes. Love in the body of Christ is not puffed up. Well, there's a related one, verse 5, love is not rude. If you are puffed up and arrogant, then you're rude to others. Anyone who treats a waitress or a waiter harshly as someone who's arrogant. And they're saying, you are below me, and therefore I have these expectations for you, and you're not meeting my expectations. You let me see how someone treats someone in the service industry, and I can tell you what he or she thinks of themselves. Love is not rude. Number six, love is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking, verse 5. It does not seek its own. African-American pastor E.V. Hill speaks of the Watts riots in Los Angeles where he pastored. One black preacher was killed for not disassociating himself from the whites. And reports were that E.V. Hill was next as a target. A phone call came in the middle of the night and awakened Evie Hill and his wife. They gave him a warning. He better stop or he would find a bomb in his car. His wife insisted, though he wouldn't have normally told her what the phone call that awakened them both was about. And he told her about the car and the bomb and he was the next target. 
The next morning, he got up and saw his car was gone. His wife was gone. It was about two hours later, she pulled in the driveway. And he said, where have you been and what have you done? And E.V. Hill's wife responded. Well, if your car had a bomb, I wanted to die instead of you. Evie Hill says, since that day, I have never asked my wife if she loves me. I don't have to ask her. I know. And then he says, since that day 2,000 years ago, when God loved me enough to die on the cross for me, I don't have to ask God ever again, do you love me? I know. The ultimate love is Christ who did not seek his own be he who had no sin became sin for us that he might die. I know. Number seven, love is not easily provoked, he adds. When we love people, we have to let our pride die a little bit, don't we? Fairness dies, our rights die, our self-pity dies. Oh, our pouting dies. Now, I love that. Don't you hate to lose that ability? You, lo you can't be self full of self-pity or pout. Yes, when, when you love rightly, when you're not easily provoked, you die a little, but the relationship with the other person might rise alive. There will be times when one of the parties, it might be a spouse or a friend or a coworker, tries to provoke you into a war of words, and you will not be provoked because love refuses to be provoked. It will not be drawn into a battle. Number eight, love does not keep a laundry list of wrongs, verse five. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Reminds me of the husband who said to his wife, why do you keep bringing up the past? I thought you had forgiven and forgotten. She says, I have forgiven and forgotten, but I don't want you to forget that I've forgiven and forgotten. Which means she hadn't forgiven and forgotten. Finally, love seeks the truth, verse six. Love is based on truth. The crucifixion and resurrection of, of, of Christ is the ultimate truth. Love is always based on truth, and love rejoices in truth. What does love really look like? It looks like a Savior dying on a cross for a people that he loves. It looks like the Creator becoming one with his creation to have a back to be, bitten, to be beaten and flesh to be pierced. That's what love looks like. Love never fails, Paul says in verse 8. There are a lot of gifts, and those gifts are on a timetable. My gift's on a timetable. In heaven, we won't need any preachers or prophets. It's over. We live in the ultimate truth, and we know all truth. Where there's tongues, they will cease. Where there's knowledge, there'll be nothing that we don't know at that time. And then he gives us that beautiful triad in verse 13. There's faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of all of the, th the things is love. Have you loved those in your church family with your quiet service and humility? You can have faith, you can have hope, but the greatest of these is love. You can prophesy, 
You can give everything you have to the poor, but if you do not have love, you are nothing. Love, it never, ever fails. Let's pray. Oh God, make us a church that loves loves each other and loves the lost in a dying world. And though we speak the truth, we always speak it with love. Maybe there's someone watching by television or someone live streaming, and this would be his day or her day to come and say in their heart, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Christ died for me. He rose again. And I believe in him, and I want to call him Lord. Maybe there are others this morning who would come and be a part of our church fellowship. We'd invite them to come. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.